one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end, but they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. And welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast for the week of June 25th, 2023. I am Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulkel. Welcome, Gene. Thank you, Sawyer. A little technical difficulty this evening, but uh, glad to be here. Glad to have you here. Welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. And truly, what would life be like without technical difficulties? Good, <laughs> good to be here Either way. Glad to have you here, and welcome as well, Larry Heron. Happy to be here, as usual. All right. Uh, Kat, unfortunately, unable to join us for this episode, but she will be back. We miss you, Kat. All right, so let's start things off then over at the Cape Canaveral Space Force Station in Florida. As uh, United Launch Alliance, ULA... Uh, sent their next-to-last ever, the penultimate Delta IV Heavy, uh, into space, carrying the NROL-68 mission for the National Reconnaissance Office. What it's doing is classified. But seeing the launch itself was open to media, and uh, I tried to go see it, but it scrubbed the first attempt. But Mark, you were there for when it actually lifted off. Yeah, I was able to persist the extra day, uh, fortunately. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing for me, the first launch attempt was that I didn't have a clue what was going on. And on the second launch attempt, I didn't really have a good idea of what time everyone was meeting to uh, to go out for the viewing. But uh, it did work out. And I'd just like to bring up a, a few little trivia things about the launch. NROL 68, uh, their, their mission patch and some of their details. Uh, the patch has a baby dragon illustrating the birth of a new satellite system, while the moon and the mother dragon silhouette represent protection of the Five Eyes community, the nation, its allies, the passage along the bottom, and pardon my Latin pronunciation, Nusquam Solare is Latin for nowhere to hide. And that just strikes me as cool. Spy satellite? nowhere to hide. We can see you. And I'd like to bring up another thing. Um, apparently I've been at Cape Canaveral for other Delta four heavy launches, but I know the, the one I do not remember. And that was EFT one. That was the uh, first flight test of the Orion capsule. I was sick as a dog and I just flat do not remember it. Unfortunately, but this one I do remember, and it was it was quite impressive. I was thankful for the opportunity to be there. It was interesting being on the Space Force base side of the Cape. Used to be in at the uh, Cape Kennedy, the civilian side. And for this launch, uh, I saw a photo that there'll be a link to in Flickr, and it's of the uh, the top of the center core booster of the uh, first stage. And it says, uh, NRO remembers our teammates, friends, and patriots, Vince Martelli, Patrick Wang, Steve Vess, Manny Salinas, and Ernie Frank. Also, in memory of our colleagues and friends, Mark Anthony, Jim Webble, Stephen Horde signed the ULA team. And I think that's a worthwhile remembrance that rockets cost money. They also cost the time and energy of many people. And in a case like this, where both NRA, NRO and the ULA team are wanting to remember some individuals and memorialize them with this launch, I think it's important to keep in mind the people that are part of 
all of these endeavors. And uh, it, it was good to see. I'm glad I got the opportunity to see the launch and uh, and to see those individuals memorialized. Indeed, Mark. Uh, I know both uh, the United Launch Alliance and I believe the NRO, the National Reconnaissance Office, they make a habit whenever they do do a launch uh, to memorialize individuals that uh, uh, had are now no longer with us and made significant contributions to both uh, to both ULA and to uh, to the NRO. Um, and uh, it's always been kind of a tradition to have somebody's name on on the launch vehicle, and I, I have to salute ULA for doing that. Um, as you were saying the names, I, I got, I'll, I'll be, I'll admit I got, I got goosebumps. And whenever I do a, a I, I try to cover a launch, um, from United Launch Alliance, I always make it a point to go ahead and make sure that I get the names of, uh, uh, of, that the launch is dedicated to. And I always try to see if I can grab a screenshot of that, because I think you made a significant point. It takes people. Everybody loves the technology, but there's always a person behind that piece of technology. And uh, I, I want to thank you for, for bringing that up. Um, to Indeed, the, we have a spy satellite up there. We don't know what its mission is, but uh, the uh, National Reconnaissance Office also goes, goes ahead and covers not only you know, clandestine operations, but also is on point for natural disasters and uh, and so on. So they are really, really trying to go ahead and make sure that the information gets out to decision makers who need that and who can look at the, the maps of where the disaster is and uh, on all the photographs that they send back down and say, okay, this is what the current situation is. What do you want to do? So that's also part of their mission as well. Yes, they're, they're there to go ahead and make sure that we're safe, but they also have a uh, protection level point too. I just thought I'd go ahead and point that out. And and I'll mention this uh, quickly. I'll wrap up here. Um, you know, the press and people that are interested in topics, we're always interested in knowing more. But honestly, National Reconnaissance Office, spy satellite, we don't really need to know. It's okay <laughs> if we don't know. Let's assume that adversaries present and future don't know. <laughs> and, and next point, uh, I saw this on Twitter, an account called we are space scout posted a picture that, uh, from my eye, I saw the event, but I never would have dreamed that the image was, uh, what was, what was actually there. And, uh, cause I'm not a photographer. I don't have the equipment or even, you know, the dream of, of catching photos like this. But the rocket, as it climbed out, went through one of the few very small clouds in the sky. And from this photo that we'll link to, it actually blew a hole in it. It looks like a multicolored uh, donut with, uh, with you know, some of the hues of the rainbow in it. And the, uh, the three, the th the three uh, plumes from the Delta IV Heavy, you know, emerging out the far side. And the caption on it is Delta Four Heavy opening a portal to the heavens, and I just thought that was that was pretty <laughs> good artistic uh, capture. And just want to mention that before we go on. Ravi Ohana's "We Are Space Scouts" strikes again. Very cool. And also worth pointing out, Mark, that you were only about two miles away from this one. Oh yeah, yeah. When I oh, saw oh, where oh. the when I saw where the viewing area was, it was like. Okay, now you're talking. <laughs> now you're talking. Oh, I just figured that was worth mentioning. Glad you got to see it. And uh, good news is there's still one more left. So if you didn't get to see this one, like myself, uh, we got one more try. Indeed. And if you can, do it. Because Delta Four Heavy is... is puts on one heck of a show. It's the only vehicle that I know of that lights itself on fire before it goes. <laughs> yes. I mean, I've technically seen Delta IV Heavy about 12 times, but seven of those were the NRL 44 mission that kept scrubbing. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, it's worth it. Now, we were talking a little bit about, you know, 
NRO and they are doing all these things looking back on Earth that we don't know what they're doing. But uh, NASA is about to unveil something uh, that will provide more information about our Earth that everyone can access. Gene? Yep. On uh, Wednesday, June 21st, which is uh, just a few days ago, as we record this, it is uh, June it is June 25th, uh, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson uh, did the ribbon cutting on the Earth Information Center at the uh, at NASA headquarters in Washington D.C. Um, the exhibit is uh, kind of a, a hybrid um, effort, but what the whole idea too is behind this thing is to uh, monitor the planet and gather all of that data in one area where decision makers can go ahead and extrapolate that data and look at what's going on and say, okay, this is what the coastline looks like now. What is it going to look like, you know, 10, 15 years from now, that kind of thing, or take a look at what the progression has been. Uh, It will be there for natural disasters. Yes, but it will also be there for really, really monitoring the climate. I know, you know, the, the current administration, has, that's a that's a big bulwark, if you will, of this administration um, to monitor the Earth's climate. And right now, there's really only two agencies that are very much positioned to go ahead and do that. That's NASA and NOAA. And they're sort of collaborating and getting all of that Earth science data in one area so that anyone can go ahead and take a look at it. And I mean anybody, meaning um, anybody that, that wants to go ahead and do that. Um, it's it's going to be, uh, the, the data is going to be open to all. And that's really the primary purpose of this thing, to make sure that, that pretty much all of that data is going to be accessible and that you know, uh, decision makers could go ahead and make wise, wise choices when they figure out where they want to build, where they want to place things in, in their city and so on. And uh, so a lot of civil planners can look use this data and uh, for whatever they, they need it for. So this is a big deal. Um, this is this is going to be a this is going to be be huge. And this is something that I know, know both NASA and, and the current administration have been working toward for a very long time. And that's the thing when it comes to uh, NASA that people forget about. It's not always about you know, what's going on up in space. A lot of it is also looking back of what's going on here on Earth. Continuing along, we are now going to go a little international here. We are going to go down to Karoo, and that is in French Guiana for the uh, final flight of the Ariane 5. Right, Gene? Yeah, that was postponed for a little little bit. Um, They had a uh, they decided to postpone the roll rollout of uh, Ariane of that last Ariane five booster uh, just before um, for for some technical reasons, uh, and they wanted to go ahead and take a look at uh, to make sure that the booster was fine. Uh, the two uh, satellites that it will be carrying carrying um, are in good shape, and uh, uh, it was. Uh, uh, just you know, it was just one of those things. The new launch date for Ariane for the final launch of Ariane Five will be, oddly enough, July fourth of uh, of this year. So that's that's coming up, and uh, we wave goodbye to to Ariane Five af- after that, and have Ariane Six waiting in the wings. Ariane Five has done uh, yeoman service and. Uh, we 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 bid it a fond a fond farewell, uh, but uh, Ariane six is coming around the corner with uh, some new capabilities and so on. So we'll have to see what uh, what it can bring to the table. But uh, Ariane five has has launched so many commercial and uh, scientific payloads. Uh, it, its career has been been amazing, and uh, we will we'll miss it along with along with uh, Delta four heavy on its on its upcoming final flight too exactly but again we've got two uh really big heavy lifters in their places with arian 6 and vulcan yep sometime down the line yep um vulcan i understand is still having some issues with the centaur 5 stage uh, yeah yeah so 
So we'll, they have uh, to make some uh, changes to that after a recent test in uh, at Stennis that may or may not have exploded. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think it went boom, but I think they they also made it a, an announcement. I think just a couple of just a couple of days ago that again they're they're going to hold off. They're going to do some more study on on that and and make sure that all their their ducks in are are in a row there because uh, you know lots riding on that first flight, um, including I believe. Um, a lunar mission, yes. um, you know, so we, so the folks over at ULA are taking their time. They want to make sure that, uh, um, they want to make sure that everything is good to go. And, you know, before they go ahead and tell Astrobotic to go ahead and ship, uh, ship Peregrine, they want to make sure that, uh, uh, things are, things are in good shape and, uh, and it, that bird can sit in the nest and get ready for a lunar mission. Right, and now they also have the data from their flight readiness firing under their belt as well. So they finally got to fire up the BE-4s and test that whole sequence. So uh, yeah, and everything pretty much went went according to plan with that, according to what I'm I'm hearing, at least from what I what I saw on Twitter. Everybody was was pretty much satisfied with uh, with the data they got from that. That's what it sounds like. So again, lots of uh, farewells, but also a lot of hellos on their way. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to seeing both of these birds fly, both Ariane on, on six and uh, and Vulcan, because I think they they are going to be opening up a whole new um, a whole new uh, uh, vista, if you will, of uh, for uh, for launch. Um, I, and I'll I'll say one thing for sure: it, all of this is in response to what SpaceX has been doing. Right now, because of the the other two that are in transition, SpaceX is is really really in the in the catbird seat, if you will, and uh, will probably continue to be for some time. Falcon Nine has proved itself to be quite you know the the quite the go to booster uh, for for launch needs, and and SpaceX is to be congratulated for that. Absolutely, I mean they're already over forty launches so far this year as we record. Yes. And, it, you know, their ambitious schedule continues. So, uh, it, you know, you really have to have to admire what they've done. Indeed. So while we're talking about uh, international things as well, uh, we have two new countries that have now signed the Artemis Accords. Uh, so welcome to the game, Ecuador and India. Yep, Sawyer, India signing the Artemis Accords was a big deal, and uh, and it was, I believe, that was that was just this past, that was just this past Friday, um, and Ecuador signing it came the day before. So, uh, for those who who are not aware of what the Artemis Accords are, they're basically a set of uh, agreement. It's a it's a list of agreements and sort of I don't the best way I can term it is behaviors that you want to go ahead and all of the signatories would agree to if they're going to be going ahead and exploring the lunar surface. And this, the Artemis Accords, for those of you who aren't aware, sort of complement the existing uh, Outer Space Treaty of 1967. And uh, I have to give a, a round of applause to Mike Gold and Jim Bridenstein for uh, getting uh, the Artemis Accords together and for also getting the uh, uh, what was a what so far has been an overwhelming response to that, um, as Jim Bridenstine liked to say, this is kind of soft power in the works. Uh, I know Brazil has signed the Artemis Accords, uh, and uh, uh, you know now with India signing the Artemis Accords, it's it's kind of a kind of a big deal there because they are also an up and coming spacefaring nation and to have them on board is a, is a huge milestone. Yeah. To have so many countries on board now, at what point though, does it become more of just they're signing for political prowess as opposed to actually wanting to support lunar and eventual further solar system exploration? Yeah. That's well, that's my only concern with yeah. some of these countries that are signing. Yeah, that that's the thing, Sawyer. You you have to really say because once once you've signed it, you've you've agreed that you are going to be following the accords to the letter, and you will you know it, it basically tries to set up uh, rules of the road for um, not only for 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 the moon, but possibly even beyond if if this this goes the way it's supposed to go. 
you know, so you have to wonder though, you know, is, is it just trying to be members of the club or is it, is it really saying, Hey, we are really going to go ahead and abide by all of this. And we are going to be good stewards of, uh, of the moon while trying to go ahead and explore it. Um, seems and I like, believe the, go ahead, go ahead, Larry. It just seems to me like the, the only way to really ever know that for sure is uh, to come upon a time in the future when push comes to shove and uh, the whole world is looking at you and uh, you have to decide uh, how you're going to behave. Are you going to go ahead and do something that's totally against what's in the Artemis Accords? Uh, it's like any other treaty, any yep. other country. Yep. Yep. And, uh, you know, that that's going to be the, the, the way we're going to find out if, how binding these things really, really are. But um, it, it seems to me that these things, for the most part, are being signed in good, uh, in good measure and uh, with all good intent. Uh, but as you said, you know, the future is remains to be written. Yeah, like for so instance, we'll, they're talking we'll now about uh, about different uh, aspects of the the lunar expeditions, right? The lunar orbits uh, right. are in much shorter supply, you know, than, than than orbital trajectories around the Earth. So, first come, first served, and all of that. So, so it's like you you try to get to the moon, you try to plant your bases, get everything all set up before the next guy does. Yeah, to um, to kind of put this into a little bit of perspective, is um, I, I sat through the uh, uh, rather intriguing event, the uh, the fifth annual um, space sustainability conference that uh, the Secure World Foundation put on. Uh, I think that was about two weeks ago, as as we record this, and a lot of the the feeling I got from the Artemis Accords and from what everybody else was trying to do was the fact that we've really messed up lower orbit. Um, we don't want to do that anywhere else. We want to take the lessons learned from creating all of this orbital debris that we have and, and try to mitigate that in and around the moon and Mars and so on and so on. So um, it, it seems to me that, that, there's still a lot of good faith out there that, that is basically saying we don't want to make the same mistake twice. So again, we'll have to see what happens in the future, but I think the accords are being signed um, at least for now in uh, with all good intent. That's yeah, like Dr. Mary Kay Kaiser said on one of our previous shows, she said that humans are just much better at making messes than they are cleaning them up. Indeed. Indeed. While we're talking about uh, deep space exploration here, uh, there's been some more discussion recently about the Mars Sample Return mission, uh, which right now the uh, Perseverance rover has taken some samples and dropped them as it continues its journey for a future mission to retrieve and bring back to Earth. Uh, now, there was some interesting questions that were brought up during a recent conversation about the MSR mission, correct? Uh, yeah, there's a, there was a story done by Eric Berger in Ars Technica on the 23rd of this month, uh, quoting a couple of people who were familiar with a meeting that was held uh, to brief agency leaders last week on costs for that whole Mars sample return program. Uh, and they had some sobering news. According to the article, the, the price had doubled. The development cost for the mission was no longer $4.4 billion, but rather the new estimate put it at 8 to $9 billion. And that only represented the cost to build and test the different components of the mission. It doesn't include launch costs, operating costs over a five-year period, or construction of a new sample receiving facility. So altogether, that puts the cost at about $10 billion. Yeah, and I'm I'm going to give a an alternative to that. Indeed, you're you're absolutely correct. Well, yeah. Let me let me and, just mention one more thing: is that you know that that's a lot of interesting implications for the future of other missions, depending upon what kind of decision you make. Do you want to pay that extra money for Mars sample return, or do you want to just bag it and not threaten the budgets of you know half a dozen other programs? 
Indeed. Um, I just, as an aside, uh, I sat through uh, this past week uh, for about three days, the, uh, the uh, Planetary Advisory Committee for the, uh, the uh, NASA Advisory Council. And um, there was some discussion about that, including, you know, not a lot of people wanted to go ahead and say JWST and MSR in the same breath. Uh, it seemed to be a little bit kind of taboo, but um, I will say, and and Larry, again, you pointed out that um, that people were concerned about this thing kind of being the thing that ate our budget. Indeed, there was some concern about that because you know there are other missions out there in the planetary portfolio that uh, that you want to go ahead and preserve and so on. And I, in fact, I think even. Uh, Thomas Zerbuchen uh, retweeted that article that you're talking about that Eric Berger wrote and basically said, you know, he really wants this to work, but he also doesn't want it to work at the expense of, uh, of other missions. And uh, his, his thought seems to be uh, if, if we can't get it to be reasonable, maybe we ought to, ought to rethink this. Um, I will say in the program's defense that uh, Lori Glaze, uh, who is, uh, you know, NASA's, who works for the, uh, the Planetary Committee, uh, basically said that she indicated that she doesn't have, she wants to be, I'm sorry, take two, boom. She indicated that um, the, the budget still needs to be looked at and no final numbers will come from that un- until the independent review board or, or the, uh, the IRB, uh, which is, I believe the second independent review board, uh, that, uh, that they're holding for this mission to make sure that that they've got their architecture in place and all the ducks in a row. And they've made all the, the trade-offs that they can make. Uh, none of that is no budget is really going to be talked about legitimately until that that report is released so that 10 billion may be correct but we don't know that for sure and indeed yes there has to be like a a receiving laboratory for the samples but i also think too that maybe since you have to essentially rebuild the old uh, lunar receiving lab for uh, for the Artemis uh, for the incoming Artemis samples, which will be coming in the not too distant future, uh, you might have to go ahead and, and maybe see if you can combine the two, and see if uh, if there's some kind of cost savings there. So again, you know, I'm 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 not going to go ahead and yell the sky is falling on the Mars sample return mission yet. We still have the independent review board to get through and, uh, and see what they say to make sure the architecture is, is what they want and what they, ha- what they want. And it's, it's the right one. And the price tag is, is what they can, can absorb. Uh, the other thing too, that was mentioned was that I think they have pretty much exhausted all the trade-offs, um, the only thing that I think can be removed in the architecture, maybe, are the two fetch helicopters, or maybe just one of the two fetch helicopters if they have to kind of, you know, cut some things. But those uh, two helicopters are there to go ahead and fetch those small, you know, sample tubes that are being left behind by, by Perseverance. Um, in the event that the Perseverance rover is non-functional. So they want to make, sort of kind of cover their bases and have these Ingenuity class um, helicopters in place so they can send those out, pick up the samples, and return them uh, to, to the spacecraft that's going to take them up to a, an orbiting platform and get them away from Mars. So... There's still a lot of discussion involved there. That could be the price tag. We don't know yet. Let's wait for the you know the the IRB to do its thing, 
And uh, then we can come back and say, all right, now what? Do we go ahead with this mission or do we shelve it or do we kind of see what we can do to, to get bits and pieces of this thing up and going? Because the whole purpose of it really is to bring samples back from Mars before we humans can get there and uh, uh, to kind of give us a guide geologically on where we need to go to possibly uh, look for, you know, ancient life or evidence of, of such. So again, you know, grab the popcorn, fasten your seatbelts. This is going to be a bumpy ride, but we'll see um, after the, the second uh, independent review board report is released. So to wrap things up here on this first half of our news roundup, uh, while we're talking about Mars, when we go to Mars, I don't know about you, but uh, I'd get hungry after about six months. And apparently there's a uh, challenge going on to help innovate food production for space and Earth. Mark? So here we go. The Deep Space Food Challenge is food for the next frontier. And uh, this challenge mission that is actually partway through at this point, heading into the uh, possibly the final phase, the Deep Space Food Challenge is an international competition where NASA offers prize purse awards to U.S. teams and recognition to international teams. Teams are invited to create novel and game-changing food technologies or systems that require minimal inputs and maximize safe, nutritious, and palatable food outputs for long-duration space missions, and which have potential to benefit people on Earth. I'm all in on that. So they've completed phase two, and I'm just going to tell you where the winners were from. Brooklyn, New York, Melbourne, Australia, Cape Canaveral, Florida, another company from Cape Canaveral, Florida, Gothenburg, Sweden, Riverside, California, Boulder, Colorado, and La Penrata, Finland. Pardon my pronunciation. This final phase is up to a million dollars in uh, NASA prizes. Five top-scoring U.S. winners will each be awarded $150,000 U.S. dollars. It's a little hard to interpret this with phase two being completed and and going into the final challenge, but um, they've got bonus prizes. There's recognition, plus the benefit to with all of these companies coming up with new and innovative things. And I'm sure the astronauts of the future will appreciate that effort. Links will be in the show notes. Very good. I can't wait to get me some of those food outputs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I also like how they uh, define it as food that is palatable. Not necessarily good, but palatable. (laughs) Hey Mark, I, I have to ask a question. Um, did 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 your research indicate that any of the astronauts were involved in in this? Because you know, as far as testing the food, otherwise, because I know there have been some events where astronauts have tested this thing um, and said, you know, yeah, this stuff is really good, or, or eh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> well, I I don't know. I'm sure that there's discussion about, you know, for the, especially the teams that are competing here, there's discussion amongst uh, internally with, you know, what they've learned from, you know, previous spaceflight over the last decade, especially with the International Space Station. So mm-hmm. I'm sure there's some consideration. And yeah, I, I know when, when I, I know astronauts are, are, are sort of, really getting into their own food selections when the, when they're on there. I know they're, they've given the ability to go ahead and select their own food, food selections there. So I'm sure that the, uh, the cuisine is, is, is wide, uh, is widespread. Not, you know, again, this is one of the, one of the little details that, uh, that you want to make sure that your crews are able to go ahead and, and eat good and eat well, because that, that has a lot to do with morale when you're up there. So you know, thanks, thanks, Mark, for sharing sharing the story because it 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 all. This is what what I say when I when I say the devil is always in the details, and this is definitely one of the details. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, it's Larry again. You know, the stupid sounding guy. Great news! We've gotten one comment from a listener about episode fifteen oh four, about which Liana said. 
Thanks for the info. Well, you're welcome, Liana, and I hope we hear more from you and from all our listeners in the weeks to come. If we do, we'll include your comments on a future show and thank you by name. So keep those comments coming. Good or bad, we'd really like to hear from you. To make that easier, I'm going to walk you through how to send us a voice message using your iPhone's Voice Memos app. Android phones have a similar app, but I'll have to get Mark to demonstrate that one for you. Ready? Here we go. So just tap the Voice Memos app icon to open it up. And when you do, you'll see the All Recordings screen. And tap the big red round record button at the bottom to record your message to us. And when you're finished, tap it again to stop the recording. If you want, you can listen to it to make sure it's satisfactory and you can rename the recording to whatever you want. And then when you're ready to send it, just tap the edit menu item at the top right of the screen and then tap the round checkbox next to the recording you want to send to us. The top of the screen should say one selected. And then tap the share icon at the bottom left of the screen and then tap the mail icon. You'll see a new email all set up with the recorded audio file attached. And then just add your name and how to pronounce it if it's an unusual name, plus maybe the town where you live if you want. And make sure to send the email to mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com. When it's ready, send it by tapping the send icon in the upper right hand corner of the screen. And that's it. You're done. And we're happy. And I promise, even though I sound stupid, you won't. Come on, send it today. You know you want to. Thanks. And now, back to the news. All right, now we're going to switch gears here a little bit as we go into our big story this week, which is probably the big story that many of you, if you listen to the show, have been following. Uh, and that was the recent uh, submersible that is believed to have been imploded uh, as part of the Ocean's Gate expedition to the Titanic. The vessel Titan and the five people aboard are now considered lost and deceased. Uh, but there were some interesting claims that had been made about the submersible itself and its potential ties to NASA and the space program and other major engineering groups and universities, right? Yeah, so our first, you know, as as we were talking before we started the show, there were some claims that that NASA had some involvement in the construction of the uh, submersible, the the Titan submersible that was lost. And as you, know, you had indicated, and NASA was not uh, tied in at all uh, with the uh, uh, with the construction of this particular craft. Uh, what I found kind of interesting was as I watched this uh, before we even knew of the status of the crew and 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 sadly these uh, these five indi individuals are now no longer with us and my condolences to the families but one thing I, I did kind of hit in the back of my head was what does this bode for for commercial space um, now, as far as I know, um, and as far as my own homework is concerned, when it comes to these kind of submersibles, there really isn't a lot of regulatory stuff running around with reference to the construction of, of these these particular submersibles. Um, there, there's some, but not a lot. Uh, there are some gentlemen's agreements, but not a lot. I know... Uh, the uh, the designer of the vehicle may have may have contributed to the Achilles heel of the craft by using uh, two specific uh, materials that just you know you just don't really bind together and I believe that was that was titanium and, and carbon fiber um, and a lot of debate has been put together as far as the design of that was carbon fiber the right solution. And, you know, as, as time is going to go on, I think we're going to find out that that was no, uh, that was probably a, a bad choice. 
But um, what does this say about commercial space? And what does this say about, uh, uh, about construction and so on? And, you know, is there going to be a point where we may lose a crew up there because of a vehicle that may or may not be up to, uh, up to uh, snuff? And, um, well, uh, I started a bit of a firestorm <laughs> because I had the usual group of arm, armchair, armchair astronauts coming at me saying, oh, no, you know, they're, they're never going to do that. And, you know, you know, how dare you go ahead and um, make such a comparison? I even had one CEO from a space company yell at me. I'm not going to mention who it was, but um, I also had some very good friends uh, in that and uh, uh, saying that you know, an accident like that is inevitable. But I did some digging a little bit and I found, um, and I, I guess we'll, we'll put this in the show notes, but there is a report by the Rand Corporation that was released, I believe it was April of this year, assessing the readiness for human commercial spaceflight safety regulations. And uh, a lot of folks just don't like those words in, in spaceflight for some reason or other, especially in commercial spaceflight, safety regulations. They kind of think that, uh, you know, that they kind of take the libertarian view and say, all right, you know, if you're going to get on board, you just sign the waiver and get on board and do your thing. And no, that's not the way it works. It, the, you don't want to imagine doing that on, on an aircraft. You know, rolling the dice and saying, hey, you know, you, you may get to your destination. Yeah, may not. You know, and, and what are the odds? Um, the, the, you know, picture that going on board a, you know, a, a seven, a, you know, a 787 today. It, it just wouldn't work. Um, so what does this say about, about regu- a regulatory body looking at the construction of new spacecraft going over there now? I'm going to exclude from the argument the SpaceX Dragon and the Boeing Starliner. Those are being really, really scrutinized by NASA. They have to go ahead and pass a rigorous safety plan and a rigorous you know, safety testing regime before NASA will allow astronauts to fly on board those two spacecraft. So I'm going to omit those two. But there are other in the suborbital realm that I kind of worry about because right now there there really isn't a um, a set construction, you know, regulation deal. I know in like, for instance, I know in in, in the deep space and in the deep sea submersible thing, there really is sort of some gentleman's agreements here and there, but there are really... there really isn't isn't these these regs there. There really isn't a, a certification process. Um, I'm wondering. I'm going to throw this out there, but do we need some sort of regulatory body for for new spacecraft coming up you know, past the um, uh, both the the Starliner and the Crew Dragon? I know. You know, we still have the Dream Chaser to look at, and my bet is if 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 Dream Chaser, the piloted version, is still ready to go by the time the ISS is there, or even by the time it will be involved in the commercial crew program, um, it will still have to pass you know a lot of NASA rigorous safety tests. So I'm gonna I'm gonna leave that that craft also alone, and I'm going to put it in that same realm. But I know in the suborbital area, um, Phil McAllister was saying they don't have that kind of, you know, regulatory regime set up, and they're trying to get one going to take a look at these suborbital craft that are coming in, you know, like, like the, the New Shepard, like the, uh, the Virgin Galactic spacecraft, and so on. Um, are these vehicles safe enough to put you know, NASA civil servants on them? And right now, there really isn't sort of a regulatory regime. Well, so Gene, I'd, I'd, I'd ask, first of all, I would ask, uh, what, what, uh, 
when you're talking about the FAA, the FAA surely has some role to play in these suborbital craft, if only because when they're in the atmosphere, they are aircraft, right? Right. So it seems like they have some role to play there, or am I mistaken? Well, there'll be something that uh, we'll get to in the future. Kat has a resource at her um, university that is very knowledgeable on the FAA and this this intersection of uh, crew safety, public safety, and such. So I think we'll just have to kind of put a pause on that and uh, look forward to something later on that uh, I think will be very satisfying for me particularly to understand better what that's all about. And of course we do have the attorneys that'll take care of any issues that come along. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I almost shudder to think what these five, you know, after, um, you know, the, these, these, these five families, um, that are just grappling with the loss of, of their family members, um, in the future, what's, <laughs> what's going to happen? I mean, is, is, is that particular company, Ocean's Gate, going to be sued into oblivion or, or, or not? And I, I think too, that's going to be, a be, in, be something interesting to, to watch and unfold. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm also taking a look at this RAND study and the key findings. And, uh, they were saying that, uh, standards development, Organizations or SDOs have developed voluntary standards relating to commercial spaceflight that could affect participant safety, but significant work remains. Um, point one is some stakeholders express concern that the process is moving too slowly. Uh, several challenges are limiting the development of a consensus of standards, but the process of building a consensus of standards remains valuable, particularly because it provides a forum for collaboration and for industry members to provide input and feedback. Uh, Although no single set of consensus standards for participant safety has been adopted across the industry, commercial spaceflight companies have their own sets of safety practices, excuse me, that might, or open paren, might not, close paren, uh, incorporate SDO standards. And uh, the last finding they had uh, was directly assessing the safety practices of individual companies was not possible because much of this information is treated as proprietary. I think that's going to, you know, that's going to always gets in the way of anything. Oh, that that's proprietary data. We can't really say anything about that. How does safety, you know, when you have that wall there, how do these these safety trends kind of, you know, permeate through the industry? Um, it's 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 a difficult conundrum. Yeah, and I'd also point out that even those programs that had all kinds of oversight by NASA and or FAA, you know, going back to like we've talked about in the past, Apollo One, uh, mm-hmm. Challenger, Columbia. I mean, accidents still happen no matter no matter how much regulation you have and how much oversight and how much inspection, there's always things that happen just because humans are fallible. Yeah. And, but I I guess too, we have to go back and and kind of figure, figure out how do we make ourselves less fallible? I think that's, that's where we're, where we're kind of, uh, I think that that's where we're, where, where, where we're coming from. And should we have a list of standards? if you will, to make us less valuable. You see where, where, where I'm coming from? Oh, and, sure, uh, sure. Food and for every thought. time I, yeah, and every time I mention a, a regulatory body of some sort, whether it be the FAA or somebody else, you know, I, I you know, everybody starts clamoring and, and coming down my throat, but, you know, how dare you even re- mention the word regulation in, in, in this area? Yeah, you need it. I'm sorry. There has to be some sort of uniform look at safety as we go forward for these vehicles. So we don't have um, something unforgiving happen um, in that. And I'm, I'm going to just throw this out there. And if I'm going to blow the, the dust off of my brain a little bit. 
and I'm going to remember a vehicle that I know Orbital ATK was looking at, and this was eons ago, called Liberty, and they were they were going to make a, a huge deal out of uh, out of composites for that particular spacecraft, and um, I'm I'm kind of wondering how reusable such a vehicle would be in, in a space regime. You know, made out of a composite material, as opposed to you know what we're what we're making the hulls out of today. So it you know it it kind of leads it it kind of leads me to think about that rethink that vehicle again, because uh, in 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 the beginning I was I was really kind of interested. Said, hey, this is kind of an interesting way of looking at it. And then you know, hearing about what I'm hearing about composites today, I kind of wonder would that vehicle pass muster anyhow. So it's it's just something I'm I'm going to throw out there. Very good. Yeah, definitely some uh, interesting ideas there to consider as we see commercial space progress forward. Yeah, and and uh, but I do definitely see whether it's if if it's the FAA or a or some other body. It cannot. It's not NASA. NASA is not a regulatory body. It never was set up to be, and I don't think that should be NASA's business. NASA's in the exploration business and should continue to be there. But there has to be, whether it's the the FAA or some other body, somebody has to pick up the baton and really, really look at this from a regulatory standpoint just to ensure the safety of these vehicles. And on that note, I think that will bring this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everyone who joined us here tonight, including Gene McCulka. Thank you, Gene. Fun night, Sawyer. Thank you so much, and uh, can't wait for next time. Same. Thank you all for joining us, Mark Ratterman. Ditto. Good to be here. See you later. And thank you for joining us, Larry Harron. Thanks. Until next time. And before we go, I just want to mention two things. One, Kat, again, we miss you. Hopefully you're, you're back here real, real soon. And uh, just want to give a shout out to the listeners. Uh, thank you for, uh, for getting us over a, a, a critical, critical episode hump. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping you'll continue to jo- enjoy the content that we're delivering. That's a good point. I don't know if we mentioned that, that this was episode number 300. Yep. This is the 300th episode that Talking Space has ever put out. And uh, here's to 300 more. Indeed. And thank you again, everybody. We can't do this without you. So thanks. Exactly. Thank you for joining us. And for the 300th time, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.